Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle. You're listening to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast. Online at schwepp.net. Episode 126, Porphyry's Gods, the Metaphysics and Physics of Divinity. In this episode, we want to get a better understanding of Porphyry's universe in terms of the rich fauna of divinities of various kinds which populate that universe from top to bottom, and in terms of the ways in which human beings are able to interact with that fauna. Like Plotinus, Porphyry posits a participatory metaphysics, realms of higher being and transcendent consciousness to which the philosopher can journey and be transformed. But unlike Plotty, Porf does not give us a whole lot of reflection on what these otherworldly journeys are like, although we will, at the end of this episode, come to a little uh, tantalizing tidbit on that subject. So we need to be careful, fill in the blanks where we can, but not overreach the evidence. That said, Porphyry does tell us way more than Plotinus about the names, ranks, and serial numbers of the gods Daimones, Dunames, and so on that you might meet in the course of your philosophic ascent, which is a great plus. His world is definitely a world full of gods, and it's a fascinating universe to explore. So let's get into it and look at Porphyry's gods, and then discuss the ways in which Porphyry recommends we knock at their doors. So, first of all, metaphysics. At the root of all reality is, of course, the one, the principle which Porphyry described in the life of Plotinus as, quote, the first and transcendent god, which has no shape nor any form, established above nous and all the noetic reality, end of quote. Orf also claims there to have attained to union with this principle once, while Plotinus did four times in Porphyry's presence. We'll come back to the union part when we get to the knocking on the doors of the gods part of this episode. Now, there's a lot of evidence that Porphyry was accustomed to think about this first god, well, as a god. He calls it the father all the time, which, as we mentioned last episode, is not to be read as anthropomorphism, but which nevertheless has a more familial ring to it, a more personal feel than the one. His approach is, one might say, quite theistic when compared to Plotinus, who hardly calls the one a god. In fact, he's very concerned not to call it anything. The other thing about Porphyry's one is that while it or he is transcendent, and we have many um, little hints to this transcendence throughout Porphyry, it or he is kind of present in the universe in a way that Plotinus's one isn't. This is my reading anyway. In that the powers, dunames, of the one are distributed throughout everything at different levels and in different ways. So without getting too technical here, bear with me if philosophic jargon is uh, something that you're not into. We'll just have a brief excursus here for a moment. For Plotinus, the word dynamis and the word energeia are concepts lifted pretty much directly from Aristotle. A dynamis is a potential for doing something, and the energeia, the actualization or action or fulfillment of some 
dunamis. It's what happens when a dunamis is actually exercised. So your eyes always have a dunamis for seeing, even when they're closed. But when they're open, you get the energia of seeing, so the action of seeing. Apologies to our blind listeners, but you get what we mean, even if you can't see yourself. So there's another sense of the term dunamis, which is prevalent in late antique religions, right? We're not in the philosophic technical vocabulary anymore. We're talking about people writing about cult and about how the gods work. Uh, and this is something that the scholar of Greek religion, Nilsson, has commented on. Dunamis in this lexicon are sort of quasi-personified aspects of a deity or divine principle at a lower level of action. They are, in fact, kind of like what Plotinus and Aristotle mean by energeiai, but in a kind of theological context. So Porphyry's universe is absolutely full of complex interlocking webs of divine dunamis, which stem ultimately from the one. As a footnote here, I wonder if anyone has compared Plotinus's idea of logos and Porphyry's idea of divine dunamis. Uh, the problem is that Plotinus's idea of logos is almost impossible to understand. But aside from that small caveat, there seems to me to be a lot of overlap here between the way the two philosophers use these concepts. At any rate, before we get into Porphyrian cosmos and its dunamis, because that it really is the realm of divine physics, let's uh, talk a little bit more about metaphysics. So the main passage on Porphyry's full theological hierarchy occurs in the De Abstinentia. There we find the god overall, Theos ho Epipassin, also known as the One, who gives rise to the intelligible gods, the Noete Theoi, the Noetic gods. Then we have the gods within heaven, Theoi hoi Entos Uranu, which you might call the heavenly gods, and then below them, we have other daimones. So let's talk about the identity of each of these levels. We've talked about the one now. Now, who are the, these noetic gods? The noetic gods are always good. They're 100% good. And they're responsible for human salvation, to which we shall return at the end of this episode. They probably don't have names per se. They're probably above that kind of traditional stuff. These are really, really primordial, abstract, divine principles. But Porphyry does seemingly consider the noose itself to be identifiable as Zeus. We learn in his work on statues that the demiurge, the demiurgic noose, the king of the cosmos can be called Zeus. So Zeus is the noetic god. But as we know from Plotinus, all the contents of the divine noose so these would be the noetic gods in the plural, are themselves, well, made of noose. They are coextensive with the noose itself as a unity in multiplicity. So whoever Porphyry's noetic gods are, they will somehow be parts of the partless Zeus. Now, we could say a lot more about the figure of Zeus here, who's quite important for Porphyry, but we'll leave it there for now. However, a choice bit of esoteric reading where Porphyry hits up some Orphic theological poetry and finds esoteric doctrines about Zeus' noose hidden therein, will return in just a few episodes' time. 
So that is the noetic world and the the one who exists above the noetic world. This, of course, gives rise to soul because we're in a basic Platinian three hypostasis system. And the next set of gods mentioned in that theological list we just gave are the heavenly gods, the gods within the heaven, Entos Uranu. Who are these? Well, these are the stars and planets. As Plato calls them in the Timaeus, the younger gods, the visible gods. So Porphyry is quite happy with the traditional names of the planets. They've become traditional by the 3rd century, although they, um, they weren't always so. Kronos, Zeus, Hermes, Aphrodite, and the rest, more familiar to English speakers by their Latinate equivalents, Saturn, Jupiter, Mercury, Venus, and so forth. Now, these are gods for Porphyry, although he does distinguish between their bodies and the divine principle sort of inhabiting or attached to the body. Now, what do these visible heavenly gods do? Now, here we get some fascinating answers. So fascinating, in fact, that we need to devote an entire episode to Porphyry's astral cosmography and astrologically informed philosophic ideas. So join us next time as we do just that with expert help. But in the meantime, we can say that the astral gods existing within the realm of soul, so lower than the noetic reality, these are cosmic gods in the technical sense of cosmos for an ancient geocentric Greek, that's everything within the sphere of the fixed stars is the cosmos. These astral gods administer fate, as well as regulating the cycles of incarnation of souls. Indeed, we have some wonderful data about what happens to our souls before birth, then as the soul enters the body and descends through the cosmos, and after death. And it's all pretty astral in Porphyry. Plotinus, uh, you may recall, doesn't really give us that much data about what happens between our lives, although he does insist that we reincarnate. For Porphyry, it's quite explicit. It's cyclical. It's it's. Basically, a, a very literalist reading of Plato, but not literalist in every respect, as we shall see. To put together a picture of this whole cycle of reincarnation, we need to take all together Porphyry's work to Gaurus, the Ad Gaurum, uh, which is, deals with embryology and outlines how the soul enters the human body alongside the De Regressu Animae, preserved by Augustine adducing comments of Porphyry's from On What Is Up To Us, his treatise on human choice and fate, and a few other bits and bobs in the fragments. The soul descends into the body from wherever it was before reincarnation, and we'll talk about where it was in just a sec. Now, on the way into the body, she gains accretions from each of the planets, but these are not actually accretions to the soul, these seem to be, there's a pretty good scholarly consensus here, accretions to what's called the uh, pneumatic vehicle, the luminous vehicle of the soul, the, the sort of mediating body, invisible body, that glues the soul to the physical body. So she's in a body, but she has these astral influences imprinted on her spiritual body as she descends. Keen listeners are familiar with this idea from Numenius of Apamea and from certain of the Hermetica, like the Poimandres. 
here we see it in a major Platonist thinker, and this will obviously have major, major influence on the course of Western esoteric thinking as we go into the future. Now, where was she before she descended into the body? Well, if you're like most people, a non-philosopher, your soul was circulating along with her native star. Yes, the night sky is the afterlife. The native star goes back to Plato's Timaeus, which you can check out in the podcast. And the idea is that each of the stars has a certain character and the star that is sort of dominates your character, that's where your soul goes and just enters into the realm of that star and circulates for some long unspecified period. This is the celestial Hades. Now, for an elite, philosophers that is, the souls between lives are fully in the noetic realm, hobnobbing with the noetic gods there, or perhaps being the gods there, being one of the gods there. Now, Andrew Smith argues that Porphyry also thinks that the super elite soul, the really pure soul, can even permanently escape the cycles of reincarnation. And I think he's right. The evidence isn't 100% uh, conclusive here, but it does seem to be what Porphyry thinks. And this might make Porphyry unique among surviving Platonists. It may be that Plotinus also believes in such an escape. Tough arguments await anyone who wants to get into this question, but it is pretty certain that Porphyry believes in this. So there are various stations you can go to when you die. Your soul can go to just leave the cycle altogether and be completely divinized. You may go to the noetic world for a cyclical period and then reincarnate if you haven't escaped the cycle. You may go to higher or lower astral regions. Now, at the end of the allotted cycle of celestial movements, and as far as I know, Porphyry doesn't give us a, a figure here. Plato sometimes gives us 1,000 years or 10,000 years, but these are probably just meant to be a nice big round figure suggesting long stages. At the end of the allotted cycle... The soul must, in any case for most of us, redescend into a body. For Porphyry, this will never be an animal body. Plotinus seems to be the last Platonist on record to really adhere to the letter of Plato's reincarnation theory and suggest that certain souls may be incarnated as horses or bees or whatever. For Porphyry, it's a human. Now, at the end of the cycle in the cosmic Hades, there is some kind of divine judgment scene based exegetically on the myth of Ur in Plato's Republic. And in this process, the soul obtains a new guardian, Daimon, which in Porphyry is very much tied up with astrological theory, as we shall see next time. And as well as gaining a new Daimon, the soul will then choose, stroke, be allotted her next life. I'm leaving aside the complicated arguments about how much Porphyry thinks is fated and how much he thinks we choose here, as it's a subject for a different podcast, the Secret History of Compatibilist Theories of Human Causation podcast. But suffice it to say, Porphyry does some creative reading of Plato's Myth of Ur and comes up with a cool sort of part-fated, part-choice theory of how our next life is determined, and the cycle begins again. Now, what does a human being do to get a better place in the afterlife or the between life? Well, the human does philosophy, ideally. And this includes a number of by now quite familiar and standard things. 
but also maybe some more exotic practices. You will, of course, have to master the whole scale of lesser and greater virtues, which help purify your soul from attachment to the body. And then you will have to make the philosophic ascent to the noetic realm while still alive, which is a way of purifying the self of bodily attachments. Now, we have in Augustine's Citations of Porphyry's work on the return of the soul. And remember, he's translating into Latin here. So these are Latin citations of a Greek work. And this whole body of testimonies to Porphyry is deeply problematic on numerous other levels as well. We find in Augustine's Latin citations of Porphyry statements that the afterlife rank of the soul is based, among other things, on ritual practices done during life. Practices which Augustine calls theurgia. Now, this is really, really interesting, and we shall have to return to it because it's not clear from anywhere else in Porphyry that doing theurgic ritual is part of the story of how you get to a good postmortem state, or even that it's necessary for ascent during one's lifetime, except from the lost but fragmentary surviving letter to Anibo. The question of theurgic ritual in Porphyry is a very fascinating one to which we shall again return. However, if you just go by Augustine, it's clear that a really important factor determining where you're going to end up after you die is the rituals you did when you were alive. So that's the star gods and their aspect as celestial afterlife location. And we'll hear more about the star gods next time because it's much more complex than this. They themselves have astral well, astrological, for want of a better term, influence on everything happening on Earth, including the souls that fall within their purview. Now, what other gods do we find in the realm of physics for Porphyry? It's time to return to the divine dunamis that we mentioned earlier. So Eusebius claims that Porphyry considers to be divine, not the bodies of things like the sun and the moon and the stars, but the invisible powers within these bodies, as we mentioned earlier. And these invisible powers are powers, dunames, of the god who is over all. So, in other words, the powers of the one within divine things like the sun and the moon is what makes them divine. This is a very non-Plotinian way of putting things, because Plotinus keeps his one, at least on the literary level, very much transcendent, even though, of course, he does talk about how the one is always there to be received by anything that can receive it. Now, Eusebius goes on. This god is one, according to Porphyry, and it fills all things with various powers. It pervades all, rules all, but in a incorporeal and invisible manner. Now, this comment of Eusebius is a comment on Porphyry's work on statues, which we shall be returning to when we discuss esoteric hermeneutics in Porphyry. It's a fascinating work, judging from the fragments. And the prologue to this work, we still have. The prologue is followed by a passage giving what the scholar Krulak has called a litany of deities. In a 2017 article, Viltianot, if I've pronounced that name right, has even tabulated the names and dunamis qualities of the gods mentioned in the litany from on statues. Um, and, you know, for listeners who've 
been pining for the days when religious Platonists, like the second century thinkers behind the Chaldean oracles, would evoke traditional gods by name. Well, the long drought is over, my friends. Porphyry mentions Hera, Hestia, Rhea, Demeter, Themis, Kore, Kore, that's uh, Persephone to you, Dionysus, etc. Even the nymphs and the nereids and all the kind of lower level nature spirits, they all have a place within this scheme of divine dunamis emanating from the one. And Porphyry tells us their particular jobs in the scheme of divine powers. Hecate, for example, our favorite goddess here at the Schwepp, is the, quote, trimorphic power of the moon, end of quote. Porphyry also gives us Osiris, Isis, and Serapis, all gods of Egyptian provenance, Serapis of Hellenistic Egyptian provenance, and also powers of the one. Isis oversees the power of the heavenly earth and of the Chthonic earth. If you're wondering what these different earths might be, you probably want to look at the myth of the true earth in Plato's Phaedo, but that's another story. At any rate, Isis here is in a kind of supervisory role over the lesser dunamis of these two different earths. And this is, in general, how Porphyry sets it up. The dunamis are arranged in complex hierarchies, with each principle in the hierarchy given the name of a traditional god, all the way down to the nymphs and the minor immortals, and they kind of answer to someone above them. So they're various powers of the earth, the sun, the moon, powers of generation, and so on and so forth in the, in the cosmos are arranged in these kind of almost bureaucratic <laughs> ontological hierarchies. So this is the world where basic physical laws, as Porphyry understands them, are all divinized. Pretty cool. Once we look at the context of the work on statues, where Porphyry is going to recommend esoteric interpretation of the statues of all these different types of god, right, as a way for lifting the soul up toward the divine original symbolized by the statue, we'll start to see how this might be a powerful use of the imagination and a powerful use of religious iconography for approaching the bodiless divine principles at work behind the scenes all around us. So Porphyry kind of recommends, I think, for philosophers or aspiring philosophers, using statues of gods as kind of the focus of meditative practices, which once you understand the hermeneutics of the statue, so you can understand the physical dunamis lying behind the god, allows you to understand divinity itself and its structures here in the cosmos. Now, Here's the thing. These dunamis we've been talking about, which are something not too unlike divinely personified laws of physics, to put it in modern terms, these dunamis, they are everywhere. They structure the entire cosmos, but they're not the end of a story by a long shot. The physical world is also absolutely full of daimones. Now, it's important to emphasize here that Porphyry is quite sloppy in his, in his use both of the term theos, god, and daimon, divine being. So we're never going to be able to differentiate the daimones in a really clear taxonomy. Although it's safe to say that the daimones are generally of a lower order than the gods, and they kind of mediate between humans and gods. However, expect some gray areas. Now, daimones exist in a bewildering number of forms for Porphyry. Like Plutarch much earlier, 
he admits that some daimones are downright evil. Do you remember that exorcism we talked about in the last episode? Well, you wouldn't want to exorcise a daimon unless it was a bad daimon. Daimones for Porphyry are in fact material creatures, though they're invisible, at least mostly. And so to a modern way of thinking, it, it sort of makes more sense to think of them as a kind of dangerous animal that you might encounter if you're unlucky, more than a kind of divine being, if that makes sense. Now, these evil daimones are a real presence in Porphyry, as they were increasingly in other thinkers of the third century, like every Christian, for example. And as with the Christians, Porphyry thinks they can get into your head and mess with your thoughts and put it in his terms, make you more attached to the body and to the material world. In the De Abstinentia, which is, among other things, our finest work from antiquity on the benefits of a vegetarian diet, Porphyry is concerned to reject the practice of animal sacrifice. This is logical, right? If, you, if you're not supposed to eat animals, you're also not supposed to kill them generally. And note here that he's totally breaking with mainstream traditional Greek religion, in which the sacrifice of animals was the religious action par excellence, and the gods love it, right? For Porphyry, the only appropriate way to worship the higher gods, the true gods, the noetic gods, is through a kind of noetic sacrifice. Basically, doing philosophy is religious cult for those deities. And there's some suggestion in certain passages of Porphyry that really the only kind of cult philosophers should be involved in is that sort of higher noetic sacrifice. However, there's a whole bunch of other passages in Porphyry where he seems to think all manner of ritual actions, um, sometimes aimed at much lower divine beings, are appropriate for philosophers. Is this one of those changes in Porphyry from the pre-Platinian Porphyry to the post-Platinian Porphyry that Bide thought he saw in his works? And to be fair, Eunapius also says that Porphyry seems to contradict himself from his earlier to his later writings, so there may be some truth in it. We don't know, or at least I don't know, but both types of uh, approach to the divine are certainly present in different fragmentary works of Porphyry. The leave out all ritual because it's dealing with lower and potentially quite dangerous and nasty deities of the cosmos. Just focus your noose on the noose and that's all you need to do. All the way across the spectrum to you need to do theurgic ritual to ensure yourself a good place in the celestial Hades. We'll come back to these, these questions later. However, certainly in the De Abstinentia, which is a work that everyone agrees is by Porphyry and which we have in extenso, in book two, he talks about sacrifices of animals performed on the behest of wicked daimones who sort of flit around the sacrifices in their invisible chariots and um, become they get a sort of mana, they become recipients of honor from humans when the sacrifices are done. The humans think they're sacrificing to the gods, in other words, but the gods don't want anything to do with burning dead animals. They're not interested in material stuff, right? They're noetic, fundamentally. So these quasi-material daimones are actually stealing the god juice coming from these sacrifices, and they're really into it. So in a way... Porphyry's critique of animal sacrifice is something that uh, a Christian would, would feel quite in harmony with. 
you know, people like Augustine are going to say that all so-called pagan cult is really worshipping of lower demons. And although daimones are not exactly demons in Porphyry, that's for sure, because some of them are, of course, extremely good and extremely um, high up the ontological chain. Nevertheless, these lower daimones really are quite demonic, as it were. Now, in this very diverse realm of daimones, we don't just find these evil daimones that like to hang around in sites of sacrifice and stuff like this. We have a whole panoply of other weird and wonderful creatures. Porphyry didn't like the Christians, but check this out. He appears to have given some attention to the place of Jesus's soul within the kind of theological hierarchy in the philosophy from oracles fragment 345. He cites an oracle which says that Jesus was a holy man and his soul had ascended to the heavens after death. But Christians made the mistake of worshipping his soul out of ignorance. So again, um, you're not supposed to worship lower daimones, right? So Christ's, Christ's soul is essentially a powerful daimon and worthy of reverence maybe, but you're not supposed to worship him. Now, unlike the ignorant Christians who worshipped him, however whose souls upon death would continue to occupy the lower material realms of being, right? They're going to be very low in the afterlife hierarchy. Christ's genuinely pious soul ascended to a higher, less materialized level of being, which doesn't get specified by the, the oracle. So the idea here is that Christ, like uh, a hero, like a Theos Aner in the um, traditional Platonist view of things upon death becomes quite divinized to a very high level and he should receive all honor for that however you should not worship him and by doing so and this is one of the many problems with the christian religion by worshiping this essentially daimonic rather than divine fully divine god being they are themselves kind of polluting their own souls and ensuring that they never transcend the material world now there's much more we can say about daimones and we will encounter more of these wonderful creatures as we move along in the podcast. But one other daimon we can just allude to here is the daimon that was given to us upon our reincarnation, our guardian daimon. Now, this guardian daimon, it has been theorized by Dorian Greenbaum, has a kind of astrological meaning, is very much tied up with the physics of the cosmos. We'll talk about that next time. But we certainly have such a daimon, and it is part of the philosopher's task to find out about that daimon, and thereby find out about himself or herself. Now, we've laid out a bit of a hierarchy here, a bit of a universe of entities. Now let's talk about how we contact them, how we knock on their doors. The gods, or let's say the divine beings for Porphyry, Although we're not supposed to necessarily worship the lower ones, and certain types of cult activity are definitely out, like animal sacrifice, nevertheless do engage with humans in some very traditional and ritualized ways, like through oracles. Porphyry sees oracles as divine utterances, genuine divine utterances, although in need of serious hermeneutics to find the philosophical truth within the speech of the gods, which tends to be loxos for Porphyry, which is a word meaning sort of crooked or uh, tricksy. Now, there's another way that the gods can enter 
interact with us in a kind of everyday life sort of way. Do you remember last episode we talked about enthusiasmos, which is often translated as inspiration, but could also be translated as divine possession. Porphyry tells us that gods play mortals like a flute. In other words, he has a strong and quite literal understanding of enthusiasmos, something that would be more familiar to uh, students of modern Afro-Caribbean religions, perhaps, than it is to students of the Abrahamic faiths. The gods can enter your body, and then when you open your mouth and speak, it's really not you speaking. It's the god in your body. He talks about the danger of some oracular practices, because seemingly there are these kind of oracular sessions going on, and we see um, evidence for this sort of thing, both in Greek magical papyri and also in the Chaldean oracles, where people created like a kind of privatized oracular setting. You don't need to have an oracle site anymore, like the Oracle of Apollo. You can just call up a god and invite it into your body. Now, humans who invoke daimones to penetrate them in order to deliver oracles through their own body, according to Porphyry, are in serious danger. They're in danger of, in, in essence, something like possession. And, you know, I think of cl- all-time classic horror movie The Exorcist in this context, which is pretty much what everyone thinks of nowadays when they think of possession. Now, forget about the Christian trappings and all that stuff, but this is the kind of thing, this kind of horrible, debased being taking over a human being that has potential to be uh, divine and just being grim and sordid and evil. This is what Porphyry seems to be pointing at. And he seems to think that this is a really rife situation. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that no one talks about that kind of possession in the older Greek tradition. But now in the third century, we have Porphyry talking about it and also Christians talking about it. And exorcism has suddenly become this really important practice, as as far as we can say, kind of important all the way across the Roman Empire, although I don't think we have much evidence for it outside of the Eastern Empire. Now, having descended to the depths of oogly-boogly manifestations of the divine, the divine intervention not in a good way, let's say, and there's more we can say about that as well, but it'll have to wait for other episodes, we want to talk about the good kind of divine intervention. And this is the saving action of the noetic gods. Now, the acute listener will recall that Plotinus had a theory of the undescended soul whereby human being is always already present within the divine noose. Does Porphyry agree with Plotinus here? Yes, although he never quite comes out and says so. Nevertheless, although he talks about the noose in ways that are not so Plotinian, he has his own Porphyrian style, let's say, when he talks about the noetic gods, he seems to be open to the idea that we should become one of them. Or rather, we should realize we are already one of them. So, how how does this happen? Through ascent. Now, what is the philosophic ascent for Porphyry? As for Plotinus, it is a move toward identification with the noetic reality, which, remember, is more unified than the cosmic reality. So in a way, it's reversing the fragmentation that happens in the process of emanation from the one, going back to more and more unity. In the letter to Markella, this philosophic essay he wrote to his wife, 
Porphyry talks about this as a unification of power, dynamos, henosis. And he makes that equivalent to the ascent to oneself, es seotein anabainen. So you couldn't have a more direct description of what's going on here on the theoretical level, right? All the different scattered dunames of the one, which are structured throughout the universe, you're moving up the chain. It's getting less and less complex. They're becoming more and more unified as you get closer to the one itself. And this is the same thing as going up to yourself. This reference to the human true self evokes sententia forti, which concerns the union of the soul with nous. So we're basically looking at something quite Plotinian here. Although the possibility that Porphyry saw rituals as part of accomplishing this noetic ascent toward union, if true, leads us in a very non-Plotinian direction. Now, this movement of henosis, this movement of becoming the noose, and I think it's safe to add to that as a supreme philosophic achievement, union with the one, this is for Porphyry salvation. And his take on salvation is much stronger than we find in Plotinus. Plotinus doesn't really think we're that lost down here, even though, of course, philosophers are the, the ones who are truly on the right path. Porphyry does seem to think that. He seems to think that this world is a bit of a veil of tears and we're lost. Maybe this is a character trait of his. We remember he became morose and contemplated suicide later in his life. This is something Plotinus never did as far as we, we know. So maybe Porphyry just was a bit of a curmudgeon but anyway, what is salvation? Well, if you can indeed leave the cycle of reincarnations behind after a truly superior philosophic life, that is probably a big part of salvation. You're leaving the wheel of samsara behind and entering into a state of true bliss in union with the gods. But in other places, and at a less exalted level, he talks about it as separation from the body. Now, what does separation from the body mean exactly? Okay, obviously, you have to practice the virtues and so on, which make you less sort of attached to bodily pleasures and all that kind of good stuff. Maybe you need to do theurgic rituals because theurgic rituals are largely in the authors who are explicitly theurgic, like Iamblichus and Proclus, concerned with separating the soul from the body. That's what, they, that's what they're for, right? Now, it may be that... By practicing philosophy, you then enter into states where you are contemplating the noetic realities. That's certainly the theory. Now, what form does that take? That's what we're all interested in, right? What does that look like from the outside? Well, as we remember in the life of Plotinus, Porphyry describes what it looks like. Basically, Plotinus is somehow both present to the phenomenal everyday world, but also sort of not present. He's present to his noose. He's in this sort of altered state of consciousness, not all the time, but a lot of the time. If that's something you can recognize when you look at someone, it becomes something a little more concrete. Now, there's two passages from Porphyry here that I'd like to finish with, which Andrew Smith interprets, and I think rightly, as maybe pointing to something like a meditation practice. In the Sententiae number nine, we have this passage, now, remember, the sententiae is a series of little, short, uh, bite-sized apothems on the philosophic life. Quote, Death is double, or there are two kinds of death. On the one hand, the familiar type, the body loosed from the soul. 
And on the other hand, the death of the philosophers, the soul being loosed from the body. And the one does not follow on the other at all. End of quote. Now, this is cryptic. Let's expand it a little bit. Body being loose from the soul, the regular kind of death, that's when your body dies, right? And the soul then just has to go back up. On the other hand, the soul being loosed from the body, this is where you take active measures and leave your body, even though your body is still alive. This, according to Smith, and I think he's right here, is what's meant here. Now, the last sentence, the one does not follow on the other at all. This is referring, I think, to the two kinds of death. And the at all part is very difficult. However, Smith suggests that this cryptic gnomic statement may refer to a practice of dying during one's life or leaving the body behind so that the one kind of death does not follow the other kind of death. In other words, there's a kind of death you can do that, that happens during life. Now, we have another passage from the various inquiries or sumixtas de temata of Porphyry, which is preserved by the Christian writer Nemesius. And this gives us a crucial, fascinating window onto what would otherwise be pretty vague and which may help us interpret Sententiae 9 that we just quoted. Now, this is Nemesius quoting Porphyry about the relationship between body and soul. Quote, he argues that, Porphyry that is, they remain not confused. So they're, they're not mingled. They're not, they're not mixed, literally. They're not poured together. But the idea is that they, they remain somehow distinct even while they're together, right? So he argues that they remain unmixed, as is clear from how the soul separates herself in a certain way from the body in sleep. And the body, while the soul evaporates, is left behind and lies there like a corpse and is merely alive so that it might not wholly perish while she, the soul, is alone, engaged in dreams, prophesying the future and visiting the noetic realities. And the same thing happens to her, the soul, whenever she contemplates one of the noetic realities by herself. For then she, as it were, separates herself and becomes alone, kathheotein, so that she can in this way head for the realities, the beings, end of quote. So separation from the body, but the reference to the body being merely alive so that it might not wholly perish seems to be a reference to the body basically being in a kind of cataleptic state. It's breathing but it has no other signs of life, right? So the fact that this doesn't just occur in sleep, but also occurs when she separates herself and becomes alone so that she can make for the beings would seem to indicate that these philosophers, at least in this work of Porphyry, enter into such a cataleptic state while alive that they go into basically a kind of trance. Their soul leaves their body in a way that, that it we're not accustomed to thinking about in a philosophic context, but is very familiar from contexts like the uh, soul travelers of the late archaic Greek period. Soul flight, the ability to project your soul out of your body, leaving the body behind like a sort of paralyzed but just barely alive garment that you take off. And this would seem to indicate something like a repeatable perhaps even formulated meditation practice of some kind 
that Porphyry is talking about here. So this is another way in which you can knock on the door of the gods. You can leave your body and go to see them at home. Stay esoteric. <laughs>